Hello, everyone, and welcome to Placing Faces, the show where we sit down with some of the most influential casting directors in all of Hollywood and across the entertainment spectrum. I am your host, Charlie Chappell, and today we are very excited to sit down with Jane Jenkins. She is both a delight to talk to and listen to, and it's probably safe to say that she has had her hand in casting at least one of your favorite nostalgic movies in her incredible career. Her early career working at Zoetrope led to collaborations like that of her and her partner at the casting company, Janet Hershenson, not to mention longtime collaborators like Rob Reiner, Ron Howard, and Mr. Steven Spielberg. Jane worked on movies like The Princess Bride, A Beautiful Mind, Beetlejuice, Dune, Apollo 13, Mrs. Doubtfire, Ghost, Hook, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Labyrinth, Willow. I could go on and on forever, but I'm going to go ahead and let her tell you all about it. Please enjoy this episode, and I hope that you learn as much as I did. Thank you so much for having us at your home. It's my pleasure. You know, the best way to start with these things is at the beginning. Oh, dear. So we're going to be going back. <laughs> Where do you come from? And how'd you get here? I come from New York. Um, I grew up in New York, and my mother took me to see my very first play when I was seven years old. That was a very long time ago. What was that play? It was Mary Martin and Ezio Pinza in South Pacific. Huh. And I was... I was smitten. I came home, and the next morning when I took my shower, I washed that man right out of my hair in the shower. I mean, I thought it was just absolutely amazing. She was washing her hair on the stage Mm -hmm. and singing at the same time. And so I grew up, you know, in New York and had the ability to not go to the theater all that often. It wasn't a thing that we did. But I had two older brothers who took me to museums and took me to the ballet and you know, those were the special occasions. And when I was at summer camp, when I was 12 years old, oddly enough, we did South Pacific. And although I am not much of a singer, somehow or another, I landed the part of Nellie Forbush and got, maybe because I had short hair, and did get to wash the, that man out of my hair on stage. <laughs> and when I went back to school that fall, there was an announcement at, uh, at assembly that if you wanted to audition or try out for any of the special New York schools like the High School of Performing Arts or Music and Art or Stuyvesant, which was the smart people school, um, that you should wait until after the uh, assembly and sign up. I went, yeah, that's me. I'm going to be an actress. And so I auditioned for the High School of Performing Arts and got in. Hmm. That was the incredible part. I had no idea. You know, I had never taken that, you know, kid acting classes. Was there a a low acceptance rate? Was it a hard school to get into? It was a hard school to get into. There were only, I think, something in the neighborhood of a hundred and maybe 400 kids in the whole school in all four grades. I think there were 125 kids in my uh, in my graduating class. Okay. So that's not a very big graduating class as opposed to the neighborhood high schools that all my friends went to. And when I did get accepted, it was because all of, all of my girlfriends, we all auditioned, and I was the only one that got accepted. And it was a big decision as to whether I go to high school with the rest of my pals or do I get on a bus and a subway to go to school in Manhattan every day? Mm-hmm. So that was a huge decision, and I decided that I was going to give it a whirl. Because my one of my older brothers had an actress girlfriend at the time, and I thought she was just absolutely the coolest thing. So I wanted to be just like Norma. 
Ah, so you had a role model. I had an inspiration. And a very early inspiration yeah. into yeah. that world. Yeah, and I think that the fact that the, that the impact of having seen South Pacific as a live Broadway show when I was so young and having the opportunity to do the same thing at you know, an age in your life where you're beginning to really think about what it is that you think you want to do for the rest of your life mm-hmm. was uh, that serendipity of, of those that play in those two key parts of my life, mm-hmm. I think, really had a big influence. The first time seeing it and yeah. experiencing Well, at that. seven, you're, you know, you're just becoming... A aware real, of the a world. real human being. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And at twelve, you're also going through that transition mm-hmm. of becoming what you know. Everybody says to kids, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" Who knows? I hardly know what I want to be when I grow up now. <laughs> yeah. You know. So from there, uh, after the School of Performing Arts, where where did you go? Um, I did not go to college. I went to summer stock. Okay. Um, I got into an off-off-Broadway play called Shadow of Heroes um, that Warner Leroy, who was the son of the Warner family Mm -hmm. and had a lot of money, uh, he had produced this, and there were people like... um, like Salome Jens was one of the stars of it, and George Gaines was one of the stars of it. Uh, and I had a little tiny part. I can't even remember. It was a very depressing play about the Hungarian uprising or some very <laughs> dramatic thing like that. And the guy who was the stage manager asked me if for an extra couple of bucks a week, I think I was making $15 a week altogether with the two jobs, the acting job. <laughs> and, and then I was offered an extra five bucks a week or some 10 bucks a week if I wanted to do uh, props, if I wanted to be the assistant prop person. And then I started taking an acting class down at uh, the HB Studios mm-hmm. in uh, Manhattan and took a class with a wonderful actor and wonderful teacher by the name of Bill Hickey. You studied with Bill Hickey, one of the greats. Oh, I mean... That's incredible. It was Mm -hmm. really incredible. It was a great, great opportunity to work with somebody like that. And I also took a class, a musical comedy class, with Charles Nelson Reilly. So you had had some good training. (laughs) And performing arts was very good training, actually. Yeah, yeah. There were some really good teachers at PA. Um, and, and it was a very diverse program at performing arts that included a dance program. You know, it was really a voice and diction class, so I could speak properly and enunciate <laughs> and all of that. So it was, performing arts was very good training, and working at HB was great training. Mm-hmm. Um, And then I met the guy who became husband number one, and he and I wound up going off. We got married, and we went off. I got married at 20. I turned 20 on June 5th, and I got married on June 9th. That seemed like a good idea at the time. (laughs) You were in love. (laughs) And we honeymooned in Summerstock and did Summerstock at the Fishkill Theater in upstate New York, and Mm -hmm. it was a theater company run by a wonderful actor named Lonnie Chapman, who is no longer with us. And among the people in that company that summer was Dustin Hoffman, Mm. who we called Dusty at that time. 
And it was a company of really terrific actors, and we did a whole bunch of plays. And, and y'all are all early twenties, just. I was twenty years old. It was the time up the creativity of creativity, you know, and it was fabulous. Yeah, it was really terrific. But then what happened was we came home from our summer in Summerstock, and I said, um, "We need to get money. <laughs> How do we get money? <laughs> we need to get this jobs." Is not paying us. And he said. A job is a really good idea, honey. And so I was very inventive because I, as much as I loved acting, the prospect of going out and getting an acting job and the auditioning and how do you do that? Who do you call? Where is is there a notice listed someplace? And you didn't have Actress Google need, to... And we didn't have yeah. Google. I didn't have an agent. I didn't understand any of that part of it. Um, and I wound up making crazy phone calls to, I don't know, you're much too young, but there used to be a, a TV show in New York at the time called The Les Crane Show. Les Crane, it was a late night talk show. Mm -hmm. And I watched the show and I looked at the credits and there was a man by the name of Rudy Tellez and his name was spelled T-E-L-L-E-Z. And I thought, because I studied French in high school, that it must be pronounced Tele. That's <laughs> so I called the station, I think it was ABC, asking for Mr. Tillet. And finally, somebody corrected me, and I got to Rudy Tejas, whose son, Stephen, became a very successful agent at CAA many years later. And I offered myself up as uh, somebody's assistant. I said, I watch the show all the time, and I had some really good ideas, blah, blah, blah. And I was like just promoting myself as somebody's assistant to enhance the show. Mm -hmm. And Rudy said, Jane Jenkins, that, did you make that up? That's a really good name. <laughs> it's a superhero name. <laughs> and I said, no, I didn't make it up. It's actually my, my new married name. And he called me in for an interview and I wound up getting a job. So very early on, I left the acting world behind and left that to my husband. And I wound up working in production. Mm -hmm. And sort of that opened up a whole other world. And it was very easy for me. As much as I loved the acting, the prospect of getting the acting job. So as a casting director now, I have great sympathy yeah. for those people who walk into my office. And you can feel the fear and the anxiety and the, the pounding heart and the saliva evaporating from mm -hmm. their mouth so that they could... Because I was there. I did it. I did it all, you know, so I understand it. Yeah. Well, from there into production, how did you then make your way into casting? Um, I was working... It was a series of... I, I landed a job working for John Peters and Barbara Streisand when they were making A Star is Born. That was interesting. That's a whole other chapter. <laughs> That's another hour. I think we're going to have to That's have a lot of chapters you, with you. <laughs> That's another hour by itself. Um, it was a fascinating job, needless to say. Yeah. And Frank Pearson was the writer and director of A Star is Born. And when, this, when we finished A Star is Born, he was starting on a film called King of the Gypsies. Mm -hmm. And he asked me if I would be interested in coming to work for him as his assistant. And I said, yes, thank you very much, because it was very trying working for John Peters, who was a volatile, 
crazy guy. Interesting guy, but very volatile. Mm -hmm. And so I went to work for Frank and did a great deal of research for him on gypsies to the point that I got invited to an actual gypsy wedding, which was a trip and well, a I half. can imagine that's it an is, experience. It was just absolutely extraordinary. And then I watched the casting process, and now that I was miss, you know, know-it-all about gypsies, <laughs> I kept on saying, the actors that they're bringing in, just, they're not really, there's a, 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 an edge that these people have, there's, there's something that's missing here. And literally, it was as if a light bulb went off in my head, and I said, casting, I could do that, that could be a really good job for me. And so I went to speak. There were two different casting directors on King of the Gypsies, and I don't remember or know why, but one of them was um, a very well-known casting director who has since left us by the name of Michael McLean. And I went and I said to Michael, you know, I used to be an actress and I've worked in production, <laughs> and I think I'd be very good at this casting stuff. And perhaps we can talk about this. And he said, well, let's, you know, after this movie, and we'll see what I'm up for next, but, you know, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you. And in the meantime, King of the Gypsies was going to be shot in New York, and I had been promised that I would go to New York with the company. And then at the last minute, I was told that not only was I not going to New York with the company, but that I no longer had a job. And so I called up Ralph Waite, who was on the Waltons pa, at the, the Pa Waltons. Walton. Yeah. And Ralph was an I know I'm. I know I look young, but I grew up in the 50s. <laughs> like, I, yeah. <laughs> Ralph was an old boyfriend of, of mine, mm. and I said, do you think that you could help me get a job at Lorimar in the casting department? I think I could be really... I mean, I understand how you put a project together after all the time that I worked in production, and he said, because he was a crazy person, he said, well, they just gave me a million dollars for a script that I wrote called On the Nickel. I'm producing it, I'm directing it, I'm starring in it, and you can cast it. And I said, but Ralph, <laughs> I don't know how to actually cast anything. There's the Screen Actors Guild rules and contracts. I don't know about that stuff. And he said the smartest thing that anybody has ever said to me. He said, go to the Screen Actors Guild and get the rule book. <laughs> you don't know a thing. Go learn the thing. <laughs> That's great. And so I went to the Screen Actors Guild. And, I, and that, you know, they used to actually have a little pamphlet with all of the rules. It was so easy back then. And I would, I would sit there every day reading what is a drop and pick up? Mm -hmm. how, how, do I, how do I have to pay this person? And then I would call, when I actually started hiring actors for the project, I would call the Screen Actors Guild and say, now, if I've made a mistake, just please call me first. I don't want the company getting into trouble because I, I'm very new at this. Mm -hmm. And I worked with the Screen Actors Guild and I read the rule book and, and we didn't get you. into any trouble and we hired right. actors and they made a movie and it was a miracle. And through a... Uh, an odd set of mistaken identity. There was another woman whose name was also Jane, who had also worked for Frank Pearson. <laughs> and some agent thought that I was that Jane. And I said, no, no, no. She said, well, you know Joe Scully. I said, no, I don't know Joe Scully. <laughs> and Joe Scully had worked on some TV project that Frank Pearson had done. 
I had no idea what this woman was talking about. So she said, well, Joe Scully is looking for an associate. I said, okay. Mm -hmm. And she recommended me to Joe Scully. And Joe Scully had been a, a successful casting director who had done a lot of television back in the day and had done, I guess he was very well known for, he had done Mahogany. Mm -hmm. um, and so I went to work for him and I said, you know, I don't know how to hire actors for more than scale because that's all the money I had. Is there, how do you pay people more than that? And he said, well, if you could hire 47 actors for scale, I can show you <laughs> how you hire them for more than scale. <laughs> and so Joe Scully hired me because he was in the process of casting a TV series called The Paper Chase. Mm -hmm. And then he also had a job to do, um, they were going to do a reboot of the show, The Millionaire. And uh, he hired me to do this. It was sort of like a backdoor pilot, and it was going to be a two-hour movie of, of the week based on the old TV show, The Millionaire, to see if they could fly it again. Reboot it. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I wound up working for him on that show, on The Millionaire. And... One job led to another, and, and I was, and I was everything. very fortunate. You know, there's a, an expression, um, a, a Hebrew expression, that things are beshert, which means that they're destined. And I mm. felt that the minute I sort of walked into the world of casting, and I made that first phone call to Ralph, one door, literally one door after the next, just opened for me. As opposed to my struggling acting <laughs> career, sure. where when all you're those doors, on a lot of doors where you're banging closed. on a lot of doors and they weren't opening up, and it was, I think, the perfect combination for me. It's always been the perfect combination of my love of acting and of actors, and the experience that I had working in production. And you know, I think that I was very fortunate that I was in the right place at the right time, and have worked with extraordinary people you sure have yeah um it's for for all of it to come together you said it's beshert yeah <laughs> it, it, and it, it, like reading your book um which we'll talk about throughout this conversation but there one the two of you have very distinct voices mm -hmm. um and two very complementary voices yeah. it seems like uh, where she kind of fell into the industry, you pushed forward into the industry, where where certain things just lined up uh, for the two of you. So it seems like Bashert was it, is something well, that even, has stuck even, with you throughout your career. Even that yeah. was in incredible. After after um, Janet had been working as uh, Jennifer Schull's assistant at Ray Stark Productions for at least a year or so. And after I finished the, the job with, um, with Joe Scully, I, land, I had met with Jennifer Scholl um, for a casting job and she didn't have anything for me at the time and I thought she was a lovely lady. And I landed a job working at Universal in the depths of the, I don't, you may not remember, but Universal used to have their casting department in the basement of the Bank of America building on the lot. So you were in this subterranean place. You had no idea okay. if it was day or night, if it was raining, it could have been snowing. We did, we had no idea. I, 
I actually get very claustrophobic, and I wound up getting um, a little goldfish and put it in a bowl on my desk so I could see something that was <laughs> moving <laughs> and alive. Um, and I was working at Universal doing uh, two TV shows, both of which I absolutely, yeah, I said, wow, if this is what this casting gig is going to be, I don't think this is going to be the life. I, you know, I just said it wasn't going to be for me. Um, and literally on a Wednesday just before lunch, Je this woman, Jennifer Scholl, who I'm sure you'll, you know, you'll look mm -hmm. her up. She's oh, yeah. an extraordinary human being yeah. and a great casting director and a wonderful, wonderful person. Jennifer called me at just before lunch and she said, and it was a Wednesday, she said, I know that this is very short notice, but do you think you could start working for me on Monday? I'm trying to juggle three movies at the same time and it's too many. I just need somebody to come in and take over one. And I said, yes. <laughs> I just said, yes. And I went running into the guy who was the head of the department. I went running into his office. I said, we, I need to talk to you. I just had this blah, blah, blah. He said, I can't talk to you now. I'll talk to you over lunch, after lunch. And literally during lunch, one of the shows that I was working on was canceled. And the other show was put on a hiatus. And so by the time he came back from lunch, I, I had no shows that I was actually casting. And I said both, so I told him what happened and that Jennifer Scholl had just called me and offered me a feature to cast at Ray Stark. And I, Friday would be my last day since I have no shows to cast and I can clean up all of my paperwork. And he said to me, well, you know, you, I think you're making a terrible mistake. You'll go off and you'll cast one feature and you'll be begging for this job back. And I said, it's the chance I have to take. It's mm. too good an opportunity. And Jennifer Scholl is part of what really changed my life because after um, I was there for like three months, Jennifer had worked with, it's such an incestuous business that we're in. For sure. It's so many, <laughs> so many layers. But Jennifer had worked for Francis Coppola mm. along with Fred Roos and Mike Fenton way back in the day. Yeah. And Francis, so this was like 1979, mm -hmm. and Francis was just coming down to L.A. to start Zoetrope Studios yeah. here. And he asked Jennifer if he said, I'd like to start putting together sort of an old-fashioned casting department and put some people under contract and go into acting classes and find new actors. Huh. And he was trying to build a small he studio. He was trying to really build sort of an old-fashioned yeah, yeah. little independent studio. And Jennifer, he asked Jennifer if she would come and head up that casting department. She owed me nothing. She's, and she said to him, well, I would be interested if I can bring Jane and Janet with me. And then she looked at me and she said, would you be interested in working for Francis Coppola? And I went... Wait, let me think about this. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're definitely okay. going to go into that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, if you want to continue so on with this. So here we yeah, are. We'll check back. So Janet um, and Jennifer were finishing up a movie called The Competition, and I was just finished with a movie that I took over for Jennifer called um, It's My Turn, 
with Michael Douglas and Jill Clayburgh. And so I was the f one that was the freest. And so we moved over, we partially moved, they had to stay at uh, Race Dark and they, Jennifer had already given the notice to everybody. And I, we moved over to Zoetrope in a pouring rain. I will never forget that as long as I live. It never rains in California except <laughs> when you're moving. And I started casting one from the heart. Was the that first, was your first one at Zotrope. It was the first project up. And then Janet and Jennifer came a couple of weeks later to when they finished everything at uh, Race Dark. Mm -hmm. And Zoetrope was, you know, Janet and I have always referred to that time as going to the University of Zotrope. Yeah. It was an extraordinary time. There was some, you know, brilliantly creative people involved. And it was thrilling to be there. And it's oh what opened gosh. the doors, you know, once we became known as Francis's casting department, it was like, you know, and because Fred Roos had a very singular career, he and Lynn Stallmaster back in the day, if you got a, if you were an actor and got a phone call from either of those guys, your career was sort of in full gear and, mm -hmm. and you were going to happen. Um, so people would call Fred all the time to say, I need a casting director. And as Zoetrope sort of collapsed on itself, um, as it did, yeah. people, oh, like Ron Howard, <laughs> called Fred Roos <laughs> and said, I need like a casting director. Because Ron was just, he had just done a couple of, you know, Corman films. Yeah, he had done one, and, a couple TV movies. And a couple and, of TV yeah. things. Um, and he was starting on uh, Night Shift, which was going to be his first yeah. big feature. Mm -hmm. And Fred said, just hire Jane and Janet. And he said, okay. <laughs> and then um, Rob Reiner called and said, I need a casting director. And he said, just hire Jane and Janet. And he said, okay. And because both of those guys have been, so it was at the very beginning of, you know, Rob had just done uh, Spinal Tap. Yeah. And the sure thing was going to be his first feature after that. And, uh, you know, I, I had the great good luck of uh, being the available person to work with both of them. Yeah. And they went on to become very successful and yeah. were very loyal and... Which, I mean, you've done almost every all, almost all Rob of, Reiner movie yeah, and yeah. most, most of, of Ron's. Ron's. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing was true. Jan Janet had the same relationship with uh, Chris Columbus. With Chris Columbus, yeah. You know, so mm -hmm. just because they called Fred Roos and needed a casting director. Thank you, Fred Roos. I always thank Fred, Ralph Waite and Fred Roos and Jennifer are, you know, the reason that I am here today. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so let's step back just a little bit. I want to bring up, we've, we've said her name a few times, um, but I want to talk about your long-term partnership with Janet. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like you got, where, where exactly did you guys meet? With, at Jennifer's. In, she you was, met at Jennifer's. She was Jennifer's okay. assistant. You know, Janet was very tentative about actually becoming a casting director. She was. She was not in a, she did not come from a show business family. She grew up in the Valley. Mm -hmm. And she sort of lucked into the job with Jennifer. It was, she had gone to, um, uh, I guess, a, an agency, you know. Like a, a temp agency. A te that's yeah, yeah. the word, yeah. a temp agency. And she was about to take a typing test. 
and there was nobody else. And she tells the story. It's always been a very amusing story. There was nobody else in the room, and the phone was ringing, and the woman who ran the agency, somebody was calling looking for somebody who could answer phones at Columbia Studios. Mm-hmm. And Janet was the only one sitting there, and the woman said, can you answer phones? And she said, yeah, I can answer phones. <laughs> <laughs> and she wound up being sent to Jennifer's office to answer the phones. And that's how she met Jennifer. And Jennifer really liked her and needed whoever her assistant was at the time that there was just a temporary job. Her assistant left, I can't remember the exact details, but Janet wound up becoming Jennifer's assistant. Uh And she had grown up watching movies and her grandmother was a big movie fan and had all of the movie magazines. So Janet always knew all the names of all the actors, even lower down on the credits. So she um, just always she had just a mind always for that. had that mind. Yeah. Um, and still to this day, you know, is much better at telling you who actor number fifteen on the crawl was than I am. <laughs> and that's how she wound up working for so to her, she was somebody's assistant. And when we moved over to Zoetrope, um, it was very, Janet, very slowly, said, she kept on saying, no, 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 I don't want to be the cast. I'm happy to be the assistant. And Jennifer kind of pushed her into, you take over on this. Hmm. And that's how she wound up actually becoming a casting director because Jennifer pushed her <laughs> Literally into, pushed her into, into it. Into. Well, how did you two go from that, from the, the, well, the fall happened, of Zoetrope well, to the building of casting was company. When Zoetrope fell apart, mm-hmm. um, Jennifer, the three of us had, um, oh God, it's so complicated. The, the financial aspect of our little threesome was insane mm. because Zoetrope had run out of money. Um, we were only getting paid partial salaries, but Jennifer had been a very successful casting director and outside people were calling Jennifer to ask her to cast their projects. Mm-hmm. So I remember she did uh, Yes, Giorgio during that time. And then she got a call from the Mel Brooks company to do um, the Francis Farmer film, Francis. Mm-hmm. And she didn't have enough time to, do, to work on the Francis film all by herself. So she hired both Janet and I to work on Francis with her. They would pay her, I mean, it was insane. They would pay her X amount of money, and she would, from her own checking account, write out a check to Jane Jenkins and to Janet Hershenson for whatever the work was that we were doing. And then it was time to do taxes. And I said to Janet, have you been keeping track of all the checks that Jennifer has written to us? Because... Don't we have to pay taxes on all this? It's not just free money, you know, just because it isn't from an official company. And I was the only one that had an accountant at the time, and I called on my accountant. He said, are you people crazy? First of all, you have to, you have to form a corporation. I mean, you have to pay taxes on all of this. And that's how we went into business. And we had no sooner uh. become Jennifer Scholl and Associates, also known as the casting company. That was our official... Uh, our fish, because she didn't, Jennifer did not want her name as the name of the company. And I said, How about the casting company? Mm-hmm. Um, so we had no sooner done that when Ray Stark called 
Jennifer and said, we really want you back and offered her a job or Columbia offered her a job as head of talent for Columbia Pictures. And Janet and I said, we think you should take that job because although we have formed this little company, we have no foreseeable future. <laughs> we have nobody calling us. We have no jobs. We have no money. So you at least should have a job. Um, and so she, <laughs> so she did that. We were very, very keen business women, as you can see. Um, it's a miracle that we stayed in business for 40 years. So um, Jennifer went back to Columbia and Janet and I decided to open up our own little office. Mm -hmm. And um, there was uh, an agency called Rifkin David Kimball Parsagian. Um, and they had a little office space. And because Nicole David was very kind and generous, she helped us in those days because we were a show business company, we would have had to have put down a $1,000 deposit for telephones. And so she signed off on the, she said they're part of my company or whatever, however we got in there, we didn't have to, we just got telephone lines. We used to do all of our Xeroxing from, her, from Nicole's office. Nicole David and uh, this company eventually merged into William Morris. Okay, So yeah. And they represented actors like Raul Julia and, uh, oh, this young guy named Bruce Willis and oh, that, you know, guy. People, that guy. Uh -huh. um, they were, it was a phenomenal s small little boutique independent um, agency who had a great client list. Patrick Swayze was their client and mm -hmm. all of, so, and they, they owned a building that we were renting a little tiny office from. And we got lucky. You know, just we got a just a lot of right place, right time, yeah. Yeah. and what I what I'll refer to as gumption. Like you, in particular, seem to all throughout your rise into all of this, just went and did it. You well, I think walked into a room <laughs> and you said, "Hey, I can do this." Yeah, I think that's sort and of the only way. There's a lot of people way... that are afraid to do that. I think that, I think that's the only way to get anything accomplished, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and I think it's the thing that I always tell actors: you need to come in. At the job is is the audition. You have to come in totally prepared. What is going to set you apart? Why am I going to hire you as, instead of the other thirty people that have just read for the same part? Mm -hmm. What's going to put you in in the forefront? And I think the gumption part and, and the confidence, although I was terrified, I don't know, I, it was just a sense of survival. By the, t by the time I was doing all of this, I was single. Mm -hmm. I had a small child that I had to take care of. There was nobody, I didn't have a rich mother day. and father. There was nobody to call and say, mommy, can you please send a check? <laughs> I mean, yeah. to cover this month's rent, I need some help. There was nobody to, it was do or, it was do or die, yeah. you know, and the alternative, and because I did not go to university to become something useful in the world, I didn't have an alternative. I worked as a waitress, oh, because I was an actor. <laughs> <laughs> it comes with the, comes with the game. <laughs> you know, what are my qualifications? And I was a really bad secretary. Mm. 
I only, you know, sort of barely knew shorthand because my mother insisted that I go to secretarial school since I wasn't going to go to college. I had to go to secretarial school so that I could have something to fall back on. Right. Ah. We all need something to fall back on. And, you know, to me, it's always been my SAG card that I, you know, that I that was managed the to acquire. Yes, I've always paid my SAG dues so that I have something, literally, I have really? always paid my SAG dues. Because you I, show up in a lot of movies, too. I used to show up I and, you know, Ron would give me a part yeah. here and there and stuff like that. But And Wolfgang Peterson uh-huh. gave, gave me little parts. But I haven't had a part in a very long time. <laughs> and yet I still pay my SAG dues. Because you, you never can tell. Just in case. Just in case. Yeah. Because there are now all of these ca- very well-known casting directors that used to work for me. And one of these days, I'm going to start hitting them up <laughs> <laughs> and resurrect my acting career. I love it. <laughs> Just put it on delay for a little bit you of know? time. Yeah. yeah. Well, like so many actors, I mean, I can't yeah. tell you how many actors I meet, especially women who had had a career mm-hmm. doing whatever and got married, raised the kids, and now they're trying to get back. You know, now they're 45 and 50 years old. Yeah. and struggling to get back into the business. So yeah. it's never too late. It, I don't think it is. It, I think people used to think it was. And, well, you and know, the industry there's used to be a lot smaller. For an older person, yeah. I can be somebody's grandma. Yeah. There's, okay. there's all sorts of work out there. Mm-hmm. And I think they're, where we're at today, um, granted, I wasn't, I've been here a decade now. Mm-hmm. I feel like now is one of the best times ever to be an actor. Well, there's so much there's more so work. Much. There is so much work and you can make your own work. Yes, you can. Absolutely. I mean, it's phenomenal. You could go on to YouTube and there are people who are doing things that get noticed by people who can hire them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a phenomenal thing. Mm-hmm. There's never been so much work. I mean, the business, I think, has always been, been complicated. I think it's a yeah. little more complicated now. But I think that there's the money, oh. the money aspect of... You know, um, because because I have been out of it now for the last couple of years, there are so many different layers of how actors get paid Mm -hmm. between low budget, independent films, ultra low budget. You know, back when I was on the very first on on the nickel, Mm -hmm. the very first film that I cast it was 1978 or nine. Actors got one hundred and twenty five dollars a day. That was SAG minimum. And they only got, the agents only got the 10% on top of that. If the agent was smart enough to ask for the 10%, it wasn't mandatory. Which my producer let me know. (laughs) I remember that. He said, do not offer that 10%. We can't afford it. Only if they ask, we have to give it to them. So that was was the rule. Only if people asked, did I give them. But now, so now... Daily SAG scale is nine something. Mm-hmm. I can't remember because I'm not actively paying anybody at the moment. Yeah. So it seems like that's an enormous, but to get to be on a uh, on a project that is big enough to pay, pay people properly mm-hmm. doesn't happen for most actors, no. and so there because are all these so much in, low budget. There's indie. all this low budget, and people most actors are. Still making one hundred and twenty-five dollars a day. Oh yeah, it seems to be. Because it's a chance to work. Yeah. It's yeah. a chance to, and and that's totally and, understandable. And it's understandable from all of the different aspects yeah. of it, from the producer's side, because they've got well, to make because the movie. actors have to work. I actors mean, have the to only work. way you know it. This is the only creative discipline where 
in every other creative for art form, if you are a dancer or a musician, you can practice your craft mm -hmm. in a room by yourself all day long. But you cannot practice the craft of acting in a room. There's only so many monologues you can learn in a mirror. And if you're and talking into the mirror, yeah. it's all it is. bull. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you don't get an honest response. Mm -hmm. yeah. you, need, and, you need that outside and, perspective. And many actors, I think the biggest mistake that actors make is they feel, oh, I've taken acting classes and now I've graduated. No. Well, there's no graduation. No. Continue. Unless <laughs> you are in a class, unless you are stimulating those creative juices, unless you're practicing, practicing, practicing all of the time, you're just withering away. And that's a huge problem for most actors. And they sit and wait for the phone to ring. And by the time they get that into that room and have an audition, this, they bring in so much anxiety mm -hmm. and and a result, you know, if I get this job. And I always say it's never about, no audition is actually about the job that you think you're going in for. It's really an introduction to a casting director mm -hmm. who hopefully will say, that is not bad, but you're not the right person for this, but remembers you for the next movie or the movie after that or, you know, and that's really how it's the accumulative effect. Even when you go in for a casting director who has hired you before, they want to see, can you also do this? Mm -hmm. So it takes a casting director. I think there are actors that I have hired that I just bring directly into the producer director because I've known them for years. They've worked on pictures that I've cast. I know how they behave on set and I know that they're more than capable. So, but it takes a while until you get to know an actor's work well enough to know that they can really Actually do. stretch. Yeah. 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 Well, are there any specific uh, acting coaches or classes that you were, you were happy to see on somebody's resume? And, and not specifically. I mean, there's so many acting teachers there out here. Mm -hmm. There are a handful of people whose names I see over and over again. Oh, and the actors are also good actors. Sure. Um, but... You know, when people ask me to recommend oh, no, I, yeah. a class, I never recommend any classes because I feel that it's important. I say, sometimes I've, I've given people lists of the acting teachers that I keep hearing about and hearing about. And I say, but by all means, you must absolutely go and sit in on every one of those classes. It's a, such an individual, you know, everything is called the method. Uh -huh. Well, the method has a lot of different interpretations. Yeah, it does. And you go to Playhouse West or you go to Sharon Chatton down in, in yeah. Venice. It's two completely Ex different. Exactly, exactly. But they still fall within the, within the idea of method. Within the, the prescribed, you know, whatever it was that Stanislavski was talking about, it falls under that prescription. But it's a such, you know, I and I know this because when I was a kid studying with Bill Hickey, I thought I'd be very smart and take a class with Herbert Berghoff. So the studio was called HB Studios, and it was for Uta Hagen, his mm -hmm. wife, and Herbert Berghoff. Unfortunately, I never studied with Uta. And I signed up for Herbert Berghoff's class. I took one class. The man was screaming at an actor, berating him for something, and I just went, 
Oh my oh. God. Was, I like shriveled up and I never went. I, this was not a teacher who could ever sure. get. I was shy. I was nervous to begin with. This you was not anybody who was ever going to get anything positive yeah. from me other than, ah. Yeah. So. Where I look at videos of like Lee Strasberg teaching who's doing the same thing. And I'm like, oh, I want that. I want yeah. somebody to be like. Because well, and there are actors and there's, that, there's a difference. Yeah, like that's what worked for me. And I think it's really yeah. important to find out what it because we're dealing in in areas. You know, it's uh, Terry Gar had a, had a great line many years ago. She said, "It's such a strange profession. You need the skin of a rhinoceros and the heart of a butterfly." Mm-hmm. And we're asking people to come in, and I, I always give her credit for, for it because it's just a great, great mm-hmm. line. You're asking actors to come in and be their most full, tear open your chest and yeah. show me your heart. Oh, and, and do that. And do that. Five times a week. Yeah. yeah. 360 days a year. and Right. So you have to have respect <laughs> for the process and you have yeah. to understand what that process is and all of that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really, you know. Well, I could talk to you for <laughs> days about all of this stuff. Uh, let's jump into some of your projects. I want to start with Night Shift because it's, yes. it's one of your early things. Um, directed by Ron Howard, starring Henry Winkler, Michael Keaton, and Shelley Long. Uh it was one of your first ones with like name brand filmmaker who was also up and coming mm-hmm. and wasn't really a name brand yet except for being Opie and, yeah, and well, for, for Opie his Cunningham. acting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, another world I grew up in, literally mm-hmm. Mayberry, Black we and White. Did, that was you know. my yeah. I know. I kind of know now how you got associated with him, but what sort of doors did that movie in particular open for you? Were there, was there anything coming off of the back end of that that because your career from that point started? Well, that was to our that was the first sort of non-zoetrope. It was okay. That was the you know Fred had uh, said hire Jane and Janet, <laughs> and he and he and they did and and also um, when I was working for John Peters, mm-hmm. Brian Grazer was working at an agency and uh, I can't remember the name of the agency, but he, he would come around to John's office with scripts and say, you should read this and tell John that this would be a fabulous. So I knew, I knew Brian Grazer because he was an so agent. From the who would, from the get Yes. Yeah. So he would come and solicit me as John Peters' assistant to read this script and tell John Peters that this would be a great movie for Barbara. Uh-huh. Oh, I love that. <laughs> so when I went in on that meeting, I'm not sure that Janet was available. I don't know. if I, I can't. I'd have to check with her. I think I went in to meet them both by myself. I don't think she was available to to meet them. And so that's why I got hired, not the two of us. Um, But I can't can't swear to that. It was a long time ago. Um, So I already knew Brian. Oh, my God. What do you remember? And John Peter. So there was all of that. And Ron said, sure. And there we were. So it was going to be... It was at the height of Jim Belushi's career. Mm-hmm. And Ron had said, Henry, I, I gave Henry the choice of doing either part, and he chose this part, so now we need that guy. And we talked about that character being sort of like um, 
the, the, the naughty puppy who keeps peeing on the rug, but he's just so cute. You don't have the heart to beat him with the, uh-huh. with the newspaper. And that's the quality that he wanted. And we were really interested in Belushi very early on. And Belushi liked the script, but wanted us to shoot the whole movie in New York. Mm. Um, and financially, that just became impossible. And Janet had been working, oh, maybe that's what she was doing. Janet had been working on a project that never came to fruition. Uh, it was a musical comedy called Sex and Violence. And she had auditioned. She said, there's this guy that I just auditioned named Michael Keaton. He was really good. And that's how our partnership has worked for 40 years. Oh, there's this person this that I, I just yeah. auditioned would be perfect for your project. And, you know, we've always shared projects and we've always read we always read each other's scripts and knew what the other one was doing but one of us would always take the lead on uh, on any okay. particular project so that's so janet had just auditioned michael keaton on sex and violence and that wasn't going any further and so i brought michael keaton in and he came in an audition but there were a lot of people that auditioned for that including a young tom hanks mm-hmm he didn't get that job, no. um, but it worked out okay no, I for think him. He did all right. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so another one, not too far down the line from that, uh, is Doom. Uh, that's uh, directed by David Lynch. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I don't know why you <laughs> wouldn't know that. Uh, starring Kyle MacLachlan, uh, Patrick Stewart, Dean Stockwell, Alicia Witt, Brad Dourif. Um, and I want to use this chance now to talk about remakes because it's been in the news for the mm-hmm. past few months now that they're casting Dune. And I'm just curious from your perspective of having worked on that with such a prolific director uh, and such a really, like, this is a huge property. To it see was. a remake come around of something that you had a hand well, in I've making. Well, I've seen several remakes yes. of yes, things you have. <laughs> that I've worked on. And oddly enough, most of them don't work out. I don't know that yeah. Dune... I don't. Was it an enormously successful film? I don't it think is, that it fi- is a cult. It's a cult classic, but classic I don't think that sure. financially. I don't think it, it did as well as they wanted it to, for sure, yeah. especially for the budget that it was yeah. at the time, because it was a it was, it was a, a big budget, very big movie. And when you look at those worms now, you go, oh, man. "Come and the on, the boxes that we, they had around." Like, the, just... I mean, I rewatched it again <laughs> for this interview. It's a wonderful movie, but it is dated for sure it's really dated Mm -hmm. i i saw it not so long ago and i just went oh my god i can't (laughs) believe i mean but i'm curious what what is the feeling of watching a a project that you've worked on come back around and seeing a whole new generation of actors get to play with it then i must be really old (laughs) it's when you know when i get phone calls from people magazine or some strange place saying julia roberts is turning 50 I go, yeah. <laughs> and how old was she when you hired her on Mystic Pizza? 19. Mm-hmm. Well, so I just feel old. Uh, okay, <laughs> okay. Um, so you have, throughout your career, we've talked about a few of them. You've worked with the gamut of directors. You've worked with some of the best of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, from Ron Howard to David Cronenberg, David Lynch, John Hughes, Jim Henson. That was Ugh. we're gonna get into <laughs> that, that was special. Uh, Rob Reiner and almost all of his movies, Chris Columbus and Wolfgang Peterson, another just uh, uh, Steven Spielberg, Peter Berg, Michael Bay, the list just goes on and on and on. 
there are so many variables that kind of go into these creative careers as to whether or not somebody makes it, somebody gets to a certain level of success. So, and oftentimes we always talk about the upswing. How did somebody get there? Mm-hmm. What I'm curious about is once you got there, how did you hang on? How did you hold on to, to be able to breed a longevity in the industry? I think luck just, re- you know, I think luck had so much to do with it. The fact that a young Ron Howard and a young Rob Reiner became enormously successful and mm-hmm. called up again and said, well, that worked real well the last <laughs> let's time, let's do it again. <laughs> um, or that, you know, Chris Columbus did that with Janet or, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's um, I think it's a matter of doing a job well, but there are a lot of directors who only work with a casting director two or three times, you know, once, twice, yeah. that's about it. Um, I'll, I'll never forget when I, I, the first time Janet and I met with Nancy Myers, she said, well, this is really fascinating. I'm looking at your resume and you work with the same people over and over and over again. I've only worked with the same casting director once in a row. <laughs> And it's because Nancy Myers is a very <laughs> exacerbating kind of human. I mean, she was very difficult to work for because she wants to see the entire world. And every single casting mm-hmm. director who has ever worked for her, I believe to this day I am the only person who ever has signed on for a second picture <laughs> <laughs> because I thought, well... I've heard, I know all the stories and I lived through my own nightmare with her where I would see literally 80, 90 people for a one line part. It becomes just insane. You don't even, your eyes are crossed. You don't even know who you're seeing or why you're seeing them after Uh a while. Um, And so yet I signed on for a second picture saying to myself, well, she must trust my taste now. Yeah. And this next one will be so much easier, but... It was not because she's still, she doesn't, she doesn't trust anything but her. She needs, it's who she is. Yeah. It's just who she is. She needs to see 115 people for, I mean, there was in, in the holiday, it's one of my favorite examples of excess. There, there was a character who was um, the guy at the airport who stamps your passport, the customs person. Mm-hmm. And Kate Winslet's character arrives in Los Angeles and she's getting her passport stamped. And she says to the, to the customs officer, I'm a bit superstitious. Can you just wish me good luck? And the customs officer's big part was he stamps the passport and says, good luck. I saw 117 actors who all said good luck. And when you're casting for Nancy Myers, she does not want you to edit. You know, usually you edit the, now that we do everything on tape, you yeah. edit the tape and you send in the choices that you think are the most. And she said, no, Diana, don't edit anything. I, I'll, I'll watch it. And she watched everything. She would watch 117 people saying good luck, good, good luck. luck, good luck, good luck. How many ways can you say good luck? Um, <laughs> Not 117. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, you know, you work for a lot of different people, mm-hmm. and the people that you get into a groove with, so that when I'm working for someone like Rob, he trusts me implicitly. He doesn't want to see oh, to 117 is... people, he wants to see five people. Mm-hmm. 
And he trusts that the five people that I've brought in to be in front of him, one of them will be the person that he wants. Was, was that a growth into that kind yeah, of? Yeah, I mean, certainly the first few pictures we saw, you know, more people on yeah. the Princess Bride. We, you know, there aren't enough beautiful girls to, I mean, how many more beautiful girls can you see? But it also <laughs> that we didn't ever find the right beautiful girl. You know, it was until huh. until Robin Wright walked into my office, there were a number of terrific actresses, beautiful actresses. There was just something that was missing, you know, there were the people that came close. Um, there was just something and it's one that of those undefinable missing. And somewhere along the line, you know, be, because I don't know if you've ever, if, if you have an opportunity, the Bill Goldman book of The Princess Bride. I haven't. Uh, Do yourself I, a favor. Yeah. You will roll on the floor with laughter because yeah. the book goes off onto tangents that the movie just, we'd still be watching the movie. But it would be worth it. It is my favorite project that I've ever it done. Is such but an Robin project. was an actress we had met on The Sure Thing. Okay. She was, I think, maybe 17 or 18 years old. And I think the guys that Ray Gideon and Bruce Evans, who wrote The Sure Thing, I think they knew her. I, I, I think that's how she came in to begin with. And she came in for the part that we wound up hiring Nicolette Sheridan for. So you can see totally, oh, okay. totally different. Yeah. And she, so she wasn't right for that part. And cut to two years later, I'm doing The Princess Bride, and um, her agent, Robin's agent, called and asked if I remember Robin. And I said, yeah, I do remember, because she was just an astonishingly beautiful girl. Yeah. She reminded me a, a lot of Grace Kelly and that kind of, you know. She wasn't, yeah, a... she wasn't a flamboyantly beautiful girl. No. She was just a simply beautiful girl. Mm -hmm. And I said, yeah, I do remember her. And I also remember that she was not a brilliant actress at that time. Mm -hmm. But I'll see, you know, I'm doing The Princess Bride. I'll see every beautiful girl that I can. And we had already seen a couple of hundred people. And somewhere along the line, we were seeing European actresses and models. And even though their acting wasn't really what we needed, the European girls added this other flavor, and I said to Rob, you know, maybe everybody should have an accent because it just sounds, it sounds, it's like America wasn't invented during fairy tale time. It, it sounds better if it's not American. So we kept asking people to do a French accent, an English accent. If you can just, it doesn't have to be perfect. We don't, it doesn't, just don't sound American. Mm -hmm. And when Robin came in, I said to her, do you think you could do this with some kind of a foreign accent? And she said, well, my stepfather is British. I do a pretty good British accent. I said, great, do that. Uh -huh. She opened her mouth and I just went, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. I was like, I, I, from the first sentence, I went, it's buttercup. So Robin leaves the office and I went flying. Janet and I usually shared an office, but we were in a office that we both had a, a door in between us and I went oh my god oh my god I was like bouncing off the walls I said I just found buttercup and I called Rob and he was on he was at um he was at Columbia he was score he was scoring I think stand by me and I called him I had them I said you have to get a hold of him right now I need to talk to him <laughs> right now 
And he came off the scoring stage. He said, what, what, what? So I said, I found Buttercup. He said, no. I said, no, I found Buttercup. I said, do you remember that girl, Robin Wright, who came in on blah, blah, blah? And he, and he remembered her also. I said, she's Buttercup. He said, no. I said, she is, well, I don't know how we did this because nobody had cell phones in 19, whatever, 80, whatever it was. I can't remember. But I called her agent and I, and he said, well, get her over here. So <laughs> I called the agent. Somehow the agent got a hold of her. We borrowed somebody's office at Columbia and Rob and Andy Scheinman came into this whose ever office we, we borrowed and Robin read the scene with Andy Scheinman and she left and Rob said, well, we have to have Bill see this. So we arranged for Robin and everybody to meet on Saturday at Rob's house and Bill Goldman is sitting there and we're all sitting there waiting for Robin to arrive and the doorbell rings and Rob goes and answers the door and as he answers the door, there's Rob, Robin Wright standing in the doorway and she is literally backlit by God. Uh. She's standing there with her blonde hair and in this little white dress, like a little, you know, summer frock. And Bill Goldman looks at the door and he says, well, that's what I wrote. Because <laughs> you see that shot twice in the movie. That's great. <laughs> that's what I wrote. Uh. So, I, you know, because of you find, you bring Rob John Cusack on the sure thing. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, you know, first he didn't want to hire John because he was underage. Sure, he was what, 16, 17? He was 17. Yeah. And then after John read, at first he didn't even want, when I told him I found this kid in Chicago who is like, to me, John was like a baby Michael Keaton. Yeah. I said he could, he's funny, he's smart, but he could do dramatic stuff, blah, 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 blah. And for some reason, although it wasn't a usual first question, he said, how old is this? How old is he? I said, I don't know. I think he's 17. He said, I can't deal with welfare workers. It's the first movie. There's too many things. Mm -hmm. I'll have to be in school and blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, let's just see him anyway. He could be somebody. I mean, he's just great, this kid. You should see him. If it's not for this, he could be, you know, one of their friends or, you know, something. So John came in and he read for the part of Gibb and Rob said, now I have to hire him. This is going <laughs> to... But as it turned out, it worked out okay because John was about to graduate from high school and his principal gave him an early diploma. And he turned 18, like two or three or four weeks into shooting so he could get rid of the oh, welfare great. worker. Yeah. And, and treat out. him like a slave and an adult. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> So, you know, because of that, those kind of, you know, serendipitous calls, you wind up casting a lot of movies for... And some pretty <laughs> incredible movies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, some, and some really iconic characters um, from The Princess Bride. One of my favorite characters of any movie, uh, well, there's two of them in this movie in particular. This is one of those movies that I watched <laughs> as a kid on, on VHS until it wore out. <laughs> So this movie, uh, for those of you who don't know, stop listening right now uh, <laughs> and go watch this movie, then come back. Uh, it stars Carrie Elwes, uh, Mandy Patinkin, Robin Wright, Wallace Shawn, who is just <laughs> one of those character actors that you love. Andre the Giant, Carol Kane is, I love Carol Kane with all of my heart, <laughs> Billy Crystal, Fred Savage. Um, 
Little Freddie Savage. Little Freddie Savage. He's such a, <laughs> he, and he just, he looks the, he's stayed the exact same look no. his entire career from childhood. Um, but Fezzik is a really, really great character in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, Mr. Seven Foot Four, 520 pound Andre the Giant. When you watch this movie, his hand on people's faces is everywhere. And it's just, you see the scale of this man. Um, and I've heard tell that the book's author, who also uh, wrote the screenplay, Mr. William Goldman, um, said that he wanted somebody like Andre the Giant to play the giant. Yes. Well, why not? Which leads <laughs> How me. How many giants are right? there? <laughs> Which leads me to how often do you have to show the director exactly what they want, even though they don't know that's what they want? Because it sounds like well, this is the case. when you write a part for a giant, <laughs> you still need a giant. The funniest part in that whole scenario was in the same year I was also casting Willow for Ron Howard. Mm-hmm. So I was telling people who were barely four feet tall that I think that they're going to be too tall for my movie, and people who were seven feet tall that I think they're going to be too short for my movie. (laughs) So it was really from the sublime to the ridiculous. But when I first uh, went in to sit down with Rob and Bill Goldman, Mm -hmm. and I said, so this giant part... What are we? Ta- I mean, how big a giant? What, what are we talking for giant? And Bill Goldman said, "Well, you know, like Andre the Giant." And I very politely shook my head. Oh, uh, okay. I had no idea what he was. Ta- I had never heard of Andre the Giant. I was not a wrestling person. <laughs> and I came back to the office, and Janet's husband Michael has ran our office for many oh, I years. I love Michael. I met and, him years ago. Just and, a wonderful human. And I said. Andre the Giant? What is Andre the Giant? He said, what do you mean, what is Andre the Giant? You don't know who Andre the Giant? I said, why would I know this? Who is this person? He said, he's literally the biggest wrestler that there is. And I said, and I would know about the wrestling part of this because... So we we tracked down... So Andre is now the... He's what we're looking for. So we track him down through the worldwide wrestling federation say that three times really fast (laughs) (laughs) and I speak to some woman who runs the wrestling federation and I tell her that we're shooting this movie and we're doing it in England and we would need him whatever the dates were and we had loose dates and she said oh well he'll be in Japan wrestling and if you want to buy out his contract for five million dollars we would talk to him about it and went no 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 that's about half the budget of the entire movie. <laughs> Thank you very much. And now I have to go find another giant. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not such an easy mm-hmm. task. Yeah. So, you know, we, I, I had this insane in, interaction with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, where I delivered <laughs> a script to him at the top of Mulholland Drive in the you know one evening because he was going someplace and could read it on the plane, but he he knew the book, so that was a trip and a half. And then I just kept meeting all these incredibly tall people, but they were thin. Mm-hmm. They weren't you know I needed somebody who could carry three people up the cliffs of insanity. Yeah. <sighs> it was just it was just an unbelievable task. Um, there was a wonderful actor who is actually a giant. And the other thing about people who are giants, mm-hmm. 
it is a disease, and yeah. they are not, you know, everybody kept on saying, well, what about Richard Keel? Well, Richard Keel was no longer well enough to, and, and not really tall enough. I mean, he was yeah. a tall guy, but not Andre. Yeah. Um, but few are. And there was a <laughs> wonderful guy who works primarily as a film editor, actually, a guy by the name of Carl Stukin. I still remember his name from 100 years ago. And he was very tall, and he came in and he read for us. And Rob said, well, he's thin, but he's fit. So maybe if we pad him up, but he had already committed to doing um, a film called um, The Witches of Eastwick, and he plays uh, Jack Nicholson's chauffeur. Mm -hmm. And then I called up the casting director of that movie to see maybe we could work something out with, work out the dates, that he could do both of them because, you know, it would... And she said, no, not possible. You're shooting in Europe. We're not going blah, blah, blah. So then Rob was in uh, London casting, and he was going to hire a, a British casting director, and then he called me up. He said, I don't know how to work with the, these people. They do things differently. Talk you- funny, drive on the other side of the road. <laughs> yes. Can you come over? And I went, as a matter of fact, I can. So I went to London to do the casting. And I kept meeting, I met some Scottish guy who was like the strongest man in the world who could pull 10 cars with his mouth. And (laughs) it was just absolutely insane. And we were in the middle of a casting session when the phone rang and I didn't have an assistant to pick up the phone. I usually would just take the phone off, off the hook. And it was my office in L.A. saying that they had just gotten a phone call that Andre was going to the dates in Japan were canceled. And he was in Brussels on his way to Paris. Is there any way that Rob could meet him in Paris? And I went, uh, Rob. (laughs) And Rob and Andy Scheinman literally got up. We said so sorry to the actor that was auditioning. They got into a taxi, went to Heathrow, flew to De Gaulle Airport, and met Andre at the airport. And Rob tape-recorded on a little, you know, cassettes that we used to use back then. Tape recorded the whole part and met Andre and said, learn the lines just like this, you got the job. Because I've read he had trouble with the lines and Rob had to literally give him almost line readings to listen to. Well, because English was not his, he wasn't, you know, really fluent. Yeah. But he, I mean, he comes off so wonder like the, just that it's character the, is was, such a wonderful yeah. character hello lady she's <laughs> hello, so lady. so good uh, um and the fight scene between him and uh, just that it's whole ever, movie is so all incredible. the dial i mean to this day you the know dialogue was, the dialogue in that brilliant the yeah. wesley's character is i'm mean, like my, i grew up my middle name is wesley and my dad's <laughs> name is charles too so i went by wesley and this was the character that i want i wanted to be him i wanted to be why not that smart ass no that uh, just very sure of yourself. Pi- yeah. yeah, always. Um, you mock my pain. <laughs> <laughs> and then, I mean, Mandy Patinkin, I, I'll, I'll rewatch it again because, of course, I'm going to rewatch The Princess Bride. I'll look for any excuse to watch that movie. When he gets stabbed, oh my God, it's... it is still heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. I've seen that movie dozens of times, and I still, you still think he's going to die. Yeah. Oh, it's. Uh, Another great movie of yours, um, and I know we're we're probably a little past an hour already, and we've only talked about a few of your things. We're gonna have to do multiple episodes with you, Miss Jenkins. Um, another one that I really want to talk about, though, is Beetlejuice. 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 Yes. Beetlejuice. Oh, God. Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Mm-hmm. Um, directed by Tim Burton, starring Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Catherine O'Hara, Winona Ryder, and Michael Keaton, in one of his most memorable roles of all time. 
uh, it is when you play this movie and that music starts up at the beginning, you just know <laughs> you're in for a ride. Um, again, you're working with one of the biggest filmmakers in the industry, a fairly contained cast. Uh, well, first, Tim wasn't one of the biggest filmmakers at that time. Was he not? No, he had done the Frankenweenie. Yeah. Well, that wasn't, you know, it wasn't. It didn't, it, it didn't have that big a hit it on. It was a very difficult movie to cast because um, a lot of people were not amused about doing a movie about the afterlife. Huh. <laughs> and literally and everybody who was the in the movie said no to the movie, Li- except for Gina. Gina Except Davis Gina. was signed me up. Except for Gina, everybody, including Winona Ryder, everybody said, no, thank you very much. They came in, they auditioned, and then they, I don't think that I want to do this. Um, it was Just really, because it was so weird? It, it was weird. It was... it was making fun of the afterlife. It was all of that stuff. And I think people have, you know, religious and phobic things about death and dying. And sure. how amusing is that? Um, and... It was really a challenge to, I, I remember so vividly, you know, you put together as a casting director, you put together lists of appropriate talent for all of the parts. And in that first meeting that I had with Tim Burton and David Geffen, um, mm-hmm. I can't remember who else, there was somebody else that was in that room. It was an incredibly, they loved this idea, they loved that idea. I was checking off, I have choices for all. I came back to the office. I said to Janet, oh my God, I am practically done. I'm cast. Nailed they it. loved everybody. <laughs> I mean, we just have to like get them on the phone and get, well, no, mm. not so fast. Be careful. I have, you know, every time I've come back from an, enorm- an enormously successful meeting and said to Janet, I think we've got, she said, don't even say it. <laughs> don't even go there. Um, and it became really agonizing. First of all, Tim loved the idea of Sammy Davis Jr. I read that, and that would have been the Beetlejuice a character. Very different movie. Uh, it would have been a very different character. Well, and the original script too was a lot darker. Yeah, it's a lot more horror. Mm-hmm. It's a lot more yeah, violent. And the Beetlejuice character seems like a, a child uh, pervert. Yes, and a predator. And he was a demon, more uh, yeah. or less, like a winged demon. And in Michael the Keaton turned the part down five times. Five times. Five times. Until the day that David Geffen, I sat in the office and I went, wow, this is really interesting. David got, Geffen got on the phone with Michael's manager, who had been his longtime manager, uh, whose name just flew out of my head, George somebody, um, and was yelling, I mean, because David Geffen, I, I am convinced that David Geffen's power of suggestion and seduction were such that he could get a duck to say bow wow instead of quack quack. And he convinced Michael's manager that the very least that he owes his client is a meeting with Tim. To be turning this down without even sitting down with Tim Burton is ridiculous. I love it. And so finally they got Michael to come in and sit down with Tim. And I, in the script, there was a scene where he sort of um, grabs Lydia, the kid's boobs, and sort of is tweaking her boobs like the doorknobs or something. And he said, yeah, I'm not going to be doing that kind of, you know. And Tim said, well, of course not. It's just on the, you know, we can change that. Hmm. And so all of those things that made him 
that demonic and um, perverted, Tim said, no, 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 don't worry about this and don't worry about that. And finally, huh. Michaels said yes, and the rest, as they say, is is history. But all, also, um, Sylvia Sidney said, I don't think, I'm not amused. Um, and fortunately, the Richard Hashimoto, who was the producer, had just worked with her on another movie and said, no, Sylvia, I mean, it would, think about this. It would be really terrific for you and for us and changed her mind. Mm-hmm. I mean, ev- everyone. It was just an amazing... It's, and it's such an incredible cast yeah. together. Yeah, uh, it, it is. I also want to say, right now, there's a documentary on Kickstarter that uh, I saw your face in, a uh-huh. trailer of, about... Oh, uh, yes. This, about this movie. It's called <laughs> yes. The Documentary for the Recently Deceased. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, which... There's a trailer of it right now on Kickstarter. Uh, it may still be going when we release this episode. I hope they reach their goal. It's being produced by Adam F. Goldberg from the Goldbergs. It looks incredible. Um, and I can only imagine that there are just a ton of stories behind yeah, the scenes on this movie. <laughs> I get one more. Oh, oh what are we going to know? I don't know about that. It really is. I've got Because we haven't talked about A Beautiful Mind. We haven't talked about Parenthood. We haven't talked about all these movies. Yeah. What's your favorite movie to talk about? Well, The yeah. Princess Bride really is, you know, just every single person coming together like that was amazing. From Robin Wright was literally the last person that I saw for the Where for the, did you guys find Wesley for that? Rob found Wesley. He had he did. seen an early screening of a film called Lady Jane. Lady Jane is incredible. And he and said, he is I wonderful saw this it. movie and there's a boy in it. That's the kind of guy that we need. And I said, and how about if we find that guy? <laughs> I love it. The kind of guy is just the guy that you go after. That's perfect. And then... Um, then Carrie was, sh- and Rob was going to London on location shoot, but Carrie was shooting something so he couldn't meet him at the time. And he wound up meeting him in Berlin. So I wasn't there when, mm-hmm. when he met, um, but he wound up meeting him in Berlin and said, that's the guy that. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So if I've got one more and we've talked about those, let's talk about a beautiful mind. I'm ho- I'm very happy that you said that. Yes, yeah. that was an insane movie to cast as well. I can only imagine because that character, uh, over this movie directed by Ron Howard, it stars Russell Crowe um, as John Nash. Uh, you got Paul Bettany, Jennifer Connelly, Ed Harris, Adam Goldberg, and Josh Lucas. A really wonderful supporting cast around a character mm-hmm. that that and Russell Crowe has done some. Good character work. This is his, like... I thought he was pretty terrific in that. Really, one, he changes his physicality, the way he moves, the way he talks, his, mm-hmm. his mannerisms, his tics. But the cast that you built around him, I think, is one of the reasons that he shines so much. Because without Paul Bettany's exuberance, you don't well, you, see his you know, Any good actor is only as good as the actors that you yes. surround them with. Absolutely. I mean, uh, my feeling has always been that every... Every actor in the movie needs to be as talented and as good as the leading actor and should, you know, at some point in their career arrive at that place when they have that career as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you can't... No one's any less important on that credit scroll. 
No one's any less important on anything, as, as far as I've always been concerned. I always feel that the whole cast is as good as your smallest part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I you know, absolutely agree. Otherwise, it becomes like a little... And you guys talk about that in your book as yeah. well. You talk about it with like Edie McClure well, I and, do believe, and Ferris Bueller. You know, and... as, as Bill Shakespeare used to say, there are no small actors. They're really the, there yeah. are small parts, but even in this, every part has an opportunity to be a gem. Absolutely. So with this one, I mean, without well, all Paul of... Bettany was was the you know we had we had hired Robert Downey Jr. as Paul Bettany's character, as Paul Bettany's character as the imaginary really? roommate. Just when Mister Downey got himself arrested. If you remember, all I do of, remember all, all of those troubles. Yeah, and I get a phone call from Ron saying this hasn't been put out on the news yet, but Robert Downey is in jail and is not going to be available. And because we had had him, we had him early on. We, I put together a very short list, and Rob Ron said. Let's go to Robert Downey Jr. Robert Downey read it. He said yes. The agent, they were the, the deal was being made, and so now I was cast. I was, you know, about to go to New York actually, um, to do all the New York casting on it, and now all of a sudden, we don't have this guy, and I wound up having a conversation with oddly enough Jennifer Connelly's agent. Hmm because certainly Paul Bettany and Jennifer Connelly didn't even know each other then. Um, but she said, I have the perfect guy for you. I said, who is that? Can he get here right now? She said, no, he's in London. And I said, can you send over some footage? Some Who is this guy? She said, I don't have anything that I can show you because the footage that he has, you would just never think. He mm. play, plays a killer, he plays a thug, whatever it is. She said, but he's just finished a movie that is being edited. Can you, would you go to Sony and look at some film? So I go to Sony and they set up a, a little thing on, on the movieola. It wasn't even a, a screening of this movie called, um, um, oh, with, with Heath Ledger and the... Uh, a Night's nice Tale? A Night's a nice Tale, thank you. That's, oh, he's <laughs> and my... And I ugh. see this guy, the, so the, the editor says... It shows me this guy with his naked bum walking yeah. down a, a path, and he duffs an imaginary hat and says, Chaucer's the name, writing's the game. And I looked at him and I said, that's yes. my guy. Thank you. <laughs> I hope it's something good. <laughs> So I said to the editor, can you put this on a cassette for me so I can send it to Ron Howard? And he said, boy, this guy is getting very popular. I just made one of these for Steven Spielberg. I went, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> so I call Ron. I think I had a cell phone. I must have had something. I can't remember how I got a hold of him so fast because Ron lived on the, lives on the East Coast. And I, so I said, Ron, I am going to FedEx. I am putting this, and I have no copy. You cannot lose this. Mm -hmm. This is really important. This is the guy. Well, it was like the day before we were all splitting up for the Christmas holiday. I said, we need to hire him now. Spielberg So Spielberg wants, doesn't take him. <laughs> Spielberg is interested in him. I think it was for um, the Tom Cruise movie with writing on the blackboards like whatever it was it was mm. 
I can't remember the name was somebody else's movie. I said, we're going to lose this guy. There's a lot of, I was hysterical. So he said, let me look at it first. I can't just hire him. I said, well, here's what I think we should do. I think we should make him an offer subject to a meeting so that we don't lose him in the meantime. And as soon as Christmas is over, he can fly here and you can meet him. Mm -hmm. So we actually got all of that. I was just, he said, but I can't hire him. I said, you don't have to hire him. (laughs) Just get him on hold. Just put him on hold. (laughs) So we arranged all of that in like five and a half minutes. I don't know how we did it. Ron looked at the tape when it arrived the next morning. He said, oh, this guy is great. He's He's perfect. He's so good. And by the time I finally met Paul Bettany, and he came into my office, I said, thank you. He was, I was suicidal. I, if he hadn't walked into my life, because there were a number of other actors that we were interested in once we lost Downey, but one was not available, one was shooting something. I mean, it was just, there was nobody, because it was so far, all the people that had been on my original list were otherwise engaged, mm-hmm. you know, and that... Is it heartbreaking when that happens, when you lose somebody like that? that You're like, we found that person. Well, I think that Downey would have been terrific. Yeah. You know? Yeah. He's such a terrific actor. Yeah, he is. Um, He was just a little messed up at that point, and look at him now. Paul. (laughs) And 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 then they end up working together years later, and it's, it's such a... It's such an interesting industry just to be a part of. Well, I mean, this guy is, is in London. He has no idea that people are looking at his movies. Oh, sure. That, you know. Yeah. And, and I mean, because A Knight's Tale is probably one of my top ten favorite movies. I just... <laughs> I thought I, it was true. It's yeah. a wonderful movie. It's the, the whole idea of changing your stars and Heath Ledger. And just, it's yeah. funny. It's it's witty. It's beautiful. Beautiful movie. Um, and Paul is just incredibly he's, he's good just at it. Fabulous. And then to, to follow that up with the beautiful mind Not in bad. such a great character. <laughs> and and then, then the rest of the cast and was then you've got the, you know, Lucas, the rest... who's another Arkansas boy, great, mm-hmm. great actor. And I, I think what those characters do to John Nash's character of of showing different sides of what it exactly like he is. So, mm-hmm. you know, John Nash would have been like a real sad sack of a character without, you know, the the exuberance of Paul Bettany. And he could have been, you know, the, the competitive nature and the drive that he had is mirrored kind of with uh, with Josh Lucas's character, but you wouldn't see the difference with the unabashed genius yeah. that, that John yeah. Nash had. Um, and then Jennifer Connelly's grace that she kind of infuses into, and you see his grace, mm-hmm. even though it's, it's very blocked off from the rest of the world. When you get into the flow of working with some of these uh, directors and producers, meaning you've worked with them multiple times, how much easier does that process get it definitely be it. De- there becomes yeah. a shorthand. There becomes you know mm. the actor that we saw three movies ago, that we didn't hire, but that everybody remembers. You know, I, I Gary Sinise is one of is one of those people. I had first met Gary Sinise when I first started when I was in that basement at Universal. I cast. I saw him in a play here, and I cast him as um, a recurring character on. One of the TV shows, Kate Loves a Mystery, was one of the t- shows that I was casting that got the plug got pulled. Um, 
And at that time, Gary said, you know, I'm not sure they want to sign on to be a recurring character. I started this theater company in Chicago. I think I'm going to go back and work on that. So he went back to Chicago. And because Janet and I both worked on a number of films for John Hughes, we were both in and out of Chicago a lot during that period of time. And I saw Gary Sinise several times. And I went to his theater to see Steppenwolf Productions. And then cut to, I'm casting something for Ron. And I said, oh, there's an actor who's in town from Chicago, blah, 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 let's get get him in here. And Ron really liked him a lot. I can't remember what the first film was, but we did not hire him. Mm. And then we were doing, I can't remember if it was Apollo that came first or Ransom. I'd have to look at IMDb. But then- I think Apollo did. Apollo. And he came in on Apollo and Ron said, you know, so it was, he was an actor that we had met on another project Uh that I had met years before and and it all comes back you know yeah when you when you find people who are really good actors you don't want to let go of them and if they're back in town and they're back in circulation then you Get grab a hold yeah. yeah yeah marie is telling me i have to wrap up <laughs> um she's such she is a slave driver i've got way more to talk to you about. So we're going to have to do this again. I mean, we didn't even get a chance to really talk about <laughs> Apollo 13 or uh, Mrs. Columbo, if we're going way, way back. Well, M- Mrs. Uh, Columbo, oh God, who can, re- I can't even adventures remember those. babysitting. <laughs> I mean, real genius. There are so many that we're going to have to talk about next time, but all right. We'll thank you so much for your time. Uh, everyone out there who's listening, go buy her book. It is, it is by and f- far one of the best books I've read on the subject of casting, just from the stories that you guys tell, but also the how and the why and the the hierarchy breakdown that you do and the Bond stories. <laughs> we didn't even talk about James Bond. Those stories are incredible. You had me dying in that book laughing at just your, your sneaking yes. and like secret agent <laughs> casting James Bond, like it's it's incredible. So everybody, go buy this book, um, give it a read. It is it is absolutely worth it. And Jane Jenkins, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a delight. Really enjoyed it. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of Placing Faces. Miss Jenkins, it was an absolute pleasure. Can't wait to do it again. Do not forget to like, comment, subscribe, love heart, thumbs up, and share this episode. Sharing is caring, and we'd love it if you cared a little more. No pressure, though. Quick heads up that we're off next week to celebrate America, but we will be back the following week. Have you ever wondered how this show is made? Well, Maria Perry, producer extraordinaire, is how this show is made. Thank you, Maria. Placing Faces is powered by Collaborator.com, a media production service connecting media professionals to companies, brands, and agencies allowing you to scale up your production based on your needs. We would also like to thank our partners at the Casting Society of America, a hub of information about this branch of the film industry. To learn more about the society and what it takes to get into casting, you can visit castingsociety.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, be well.